Joining me now is Hassan Altayeb with FCNL, that's the Friends Committee on National Legislation. You all do amazing anti-war work. Hassan, uh, you and I have communicated over the years. Uh, unfortunately, typically always with dire uh, circumstances, but it's always great to see uh, FCNL taking great uh, peace-first approaches to, to foreign policy. So, Hassan, thanks for joining me. Uh, how are you? Yeah, thank you, Jordan. Uh, I'm as well as possible under the circumstances and, and trying to stay busy, uh, you know, keeping the activism going as you are. And I love what you're doing, uh, you know, on Twitter and just with your following. So congrats to you. Yeah, let's let's mention what you, together what we're doing uh, before we get get into, because we I've I've referenced it on the past few episodes, but haven't actually taken the time to really explain it. So uh, after I saw you all had a tool which allows people to in like thirty seconds, I can't really stress mm. how quick it is to do this. You can put in your name, your address, and your email address, and most people, your browser will auto-populate that information for you. It'll pull up who your senators are and your representative is, and it'll draft an email that you can review or edit and, and send an email to them asking for a ceasefire. Already, you all have generated 120,000 emails to Congress. I mean, this is this is spectacular. Could you talk about the impact that emails, especially in that quantity, can have in pressuring uh, legislators. Yeah, well, thank you. I really appreciate all your work pushing that out. We set up a hyperlink, fcnl.org backslash deescalate. And as I understand it, ceasefiretoday.com is what you've set up where people can go right there. Uh, the, the action is quite simple. I mean, we are, you know, we condemn all violence against civilians, whether it be, at, you know, by Hamas or the Israeli military, uh, their violent response. And we are calling for an immediate ceasefire, de-escalation and restraint. We're calling for respect for international law and the protection all, of all civilians. That includes Palestinians in Gaza and also the hostages. Now, Getting your email, you know, is a very easy and important step to just show your member of Congress and your senators how you're feeling about this. And if they are getting, you know, dozens and dozens of emails from their constituents, that goes right to the member and it's on their radar and that's being flagged for the chief of staff and the legislative director. And I know this firsthand because I, I live in the belly of the beast and I, I'm a full-time peace lobbyist. So I talk to these offices. It does make a difference. You know, it's not the only thing we need to do, but it's an important first step that we've made pretty easy here with this, uh, with this email tool. 
Right. And that ceasefire today link, you can do that. You can sign petitions. You can donate to groups doing work on the ground. You can read a script that is also on the site and call Congress and all of these things together. In addition to the protest locator, which is on there, all of these things together puts a ton of pressure on legislators and it makes it an unignorable problem, makes it much more difficult for them to go out there and say, well, Israel has a right to defend itself. And that's, you know, we'll get into that in a little bit. That's not exactly what they're doing, but that has been the refrain. And it's much more difficult to make that argument when you have, in this case, over a hundred thousand people just through this tool, emailing them saying, whoa, 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 we want peace. We want a ceasefire here because what's happening is not just Israel defending itself. So I can't stress enough how important it is to actually put pressure on members of Congress because, like you say, they notice it. A Hill staffer told me that in their office, they monitor the exact number of emails and calls on each topic for and against and the change week to week. And this was, I think, a week and a half ago at this point, this person said that they saw a huge influx of people emailing and calling in to say, we want a ceasefire. It's really difficult to ignore. And on that difficult to ignore part, yesterday we saw the IDF uh, attack the Jabalia refugee camp. This is a very densely populated part of Gaza, if not the most densely populated part of Gaza. And the IDF came out and said, yes, we did this because there was a top Hamas target there. And we saw some pushback. Wolf Blitzer, notably on CNN, kept asking repeatedly, how can you justify doing this when you know there are so many people who have nothing to do with this conflict living there? Reportedly, dozens of people were killed and many more injured. And at the top levels of the government, they kind of shrugged their shoulders. They didn't want to get into it. Oh, we got to learn more. Today, Israel did it again. They bombed the same refugee camp again today, despite claiming yesterday they got their target. So Hassan, when you see things like this, I mean, first, what comes to mind and what do you want people to understand about this being framed within an Israel defending itself uh, framework? And this is because there's a top target there. Yeah, it, it's horrific. It's absurd that that they would think this would contribute to Israeli national offense. Um, and this is a horrific violation of human rights that's against international law and it's against U.S. law. And let's not forget that. This is a violation of the Arms Export Control Act, the administration's own uh, conventional arms transfer policy, and the Foreign Assistance Act. This is horrific. Um, it's a war crime. And, you, you know, I guess I just wonder, would Israel target Hamas if they were in a synagogue in Tel Aviv? Would they blow up the, the synagogue? Um, I think they probably wouldn't. And I think that shows that they value certain lives more than others. And this is, uh, you know, just a horrific, uh, you know, action by the Israeli military. And I, I thought it was shocking, almost draw, jaw dropping uh, that exchange between Wolf Blitzer and the IDF spokesperson yesterday. Um, you know, when they admitted on air that they knew there were civilians, they admitted to a war crime on air. And, you know, just kind of brushed it off. So number one, uh, you know, Hamas attacks don't justify the kind of violence we're seeing Israel carry out in Gaza, full stop. There is no justification for violations of international humanitarian law. And there's no way that Israel can carry out its goals without an immense loss of innocent life. 
Uh, and potential for there's a huge potential for massive regional escalation. So, you know, putting the humanitarian crisis aside, uh, we're talking about potentially, you know, getting Lebanon involved, massive escalations in the West Bank uh, that would, you know, uh, undercut the administration's stated goal of a two-state solution. Uh, it would potentially cause massive uh, risk of chaos and, and more violence and, and clashes in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, uh, Iran. It could destabilize Jordan and Egypt. So let's just think just big picture what we're talking about here. We're talking about creating uh, a massive risk to U.S. citizens in the region, uh, U.S. quote unquote allies in the region, and, uh, you know, creating a one, you know, probably one of the world's worst humanitarian crises uh, right now in Gaza. And it's absolutely horrific. Uh, and that attack on the refugee camp is just, you know, the, the latest of a long litany of abuses that, you know, that start, you know, didn't just start with October, uh, the aftermath of October 7. And, you know, but this is some unprecedented violence that we're seeing play out right now. A couple weeks ago now on this show, I tried to be very cautious in how I talked about it because I didn't want to come off as hysterical or fear mongering. But it did feel like this had the potential to create a much larger regional conflict, maybe even broader. And now we're seeing Hezbollah put out like hype videos over the past couple days, which is, uh, I don't know how I feel about that. This like the kind of like the yassification of war announcements and, you know, Houthis have been launching missiles or of course you mentioned the, the attacks from Lebanon. Just, I, I'm really worried that, a fire first, ask questions later approach and the U.S. just offering nothing but unconditional support to Israel is going to create this collision course where all of these other regional players get involved and it just becomes even more deadly and devastating. And not just for people in Gaza. I mean, the, there would be I uh, probably many more civilian casualties uh, for uh, Israelis, and we we do not want that. Nobody wants that. I can't underscore that enough. By continuing this this the this aggression, by continuing these attacks on Gaza, that seems like a certainty. And I don't know if U.S. leaders have really considered that or taken it seriously in your in your lobbying in your communications with people on the Hill. Is that even on their radar? So let me just break down a. What, how I'm communicating with the Hill and kind of where things are at. Uh, Cause I think it's important to break it down. One thing I will say is that the emails, the calls, the outreach, the demonstrations, the organizing, the letters, the op-eds, you know, the interviews like this one, the work that you're doing, Jordan, and all of, uh, you know, people like you uh, using their platforms to push for change. I'm seeing uh, cracks in the dam. Let's just say it that way. Uh, where, you know, you basically had unequivocal support for Israel. Now we have, you know, more and more members pushing for fuel and, and other, uh, uh, you know, uh, humanitarian aid to get into Gaza. We've got about 27 or so people calling for a ceasefire. It, you know, that was almost at zero, uh, you know, like, a, you know, a week in. And so that's edged up. And I think more are on the fence and getting ready. Some people are saying things like humanitarian pause, 
um, which on its own really don't mean a whole lot. But I think I still think everyone taking a step forward is important. And a humanitarian pause needs to be clarified. So anyone that says humanitarian pause, we have to then follow up and say, okay, so does that mean no bombing and no ground invasion? Because if that's what you mean, we're down. Uh, but if that's not what they mean, then that's unacceptable because that's going to perpetuate this mass crisis. So when I say, hey, the arguments for ceasefire, let's protect all civilians. A ceasefire is the only way to get in humanitarian aid into Gaza, not just the south, but also the north. Uh, and that was told to us directly by the Egyptian embassy, who says, we're worried. We don't want to send in aid trucks if we think they're going to get bombed. So we have to be able to protect aid workers. And, you know, a ceasefire is how we get that done. Um, uh, uh, ceasefire can give us more time to get the hostages home. And we can do that through diplomacy. Bom you know, right now, hostages are dying because they're getting bombed by Israel. So, you, you know, folks may or may not be aware of this, but uh, uh, Israel has this thing called the Hannibal Doctrine, where they're actually authorized to kill their own uh, civilians and hostages. And that started, um, you, you know, you know, that's a long time, a few decades old practice by the Israelis that started in the uh, Israel-Lebanese uh, conflict back in uh, the early 2000s. And so, you know, to me, like, let's do diplomacy. Let's work on bringing these folks home. And, uh, there, you know, we can work with uh, folks in Qatar. We can work with the Saudis, work with the Egyptians or the Jordanians to get this done. And that's, that's doable. Ceasefire to prevent regional escalation. The last thing the world needs with Ukraine completely on fire right now and tensions between the U.S. and China. Do we really need another war in the Middle East that involves Lebanon, Syria, uh, Iraq, Yemen, Iran, and destabilizes, you know, uh, core, uh, you know, uh, U.S. allies? Um, no, we don't want that. And last but not least, war is not the answer, period. We have to stop these cycles of violence if we're ever going to have safety for Israelis and Palestinians. And finally, just, you know, move forward and, and live in peace. I mean, we just cannot bomb our way into peace and security. That will never happen. Um, so what's cutting through in my conversations on the Hill? You, you know, the, the recent Save the Children uh, stat that was published this week, talking about how uh, the number of children killed in Gaza, about 3,500 at this point, that's more than, you know, the annual uh, total of all the global conflicts last year combined uh, and, and the several years before that. So that is really actually turning heads and people are saying, wow, uh, we are seeing a, a child's rights crisis unfolding before our eyes and we need to put a stop to it. Um, the polling is actually also cutting with certain folks. I think the Democrats are especially worried that Arab American communities across the country uh, you know, in Michigan, in these swing states in Michigan, Georgia, uh, Pennsylvania, and elsewhere uh, are not going to come to the polls to vote for Democrats and vote for Joe Biden in 2024. That's something that they have to watch, especially with how tight we know this race is going to be. Um, and, uh, you, you know, yeah, so those electoral fears are huge. I think the regional escalation risks are another thing that's starting to turn heads. I've seen uh, letters 
by Rep. Crow, who's you know one of our our more like national security Democrats on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He is put, putting out a call to the Israelis to not do the ground invasion. Senator Welch is as well. So that to me is showing some progress. And uh, last but not least, uh, you know the fears of the West Bank exploding into violence is another thing that's really you know starting to worry people. Um, we're seeing potential U.S. weapons being transferred through the IDF to the settlers. And just so folks know, uh, with the escalations going on in Gaza, a lot of IDF have been stationed you know, near Gaza or near the Lebanese border, leaving the West Bank, you know, you know, in, like not a lot of security forces to patrol the West Bank. So they're actually deputizing uh, uh, settlers and, and who have been committing mass atrocities and violence against against Palestinian civilians, um, and, and that's really been escalating over the past uh, year. Uh, you know, under uh, the leadership of Ben Gavir, the defense minister in Israel, who's uh, has very extreme views. So that, to me, is another thing that I, I'm having. I'm cutting through in some of my conversations, and uh, you know, you, you have to ask, like, well, okay, if you know, you're going after Hamas. Why are all this? Why are all these escalations happening in the West Bank? It seems like you have plans for you know uh, a lot more than you're letting on. So I would just you know give folks some of that um, you know some of that advice for uh, you know conversations they're having with their members of Congress and and just other folks in their community. Yeah, the West Bank part is really important because it, while Israel claims, well, we have to do this. We have to do these raids. We have to <laughs> I kill people. We have to, we, that's what they're doing. They're killing people. They're arresting people. They have not shown any evidence or proof that this is in any, in any way connected to Hamas. And, you know, many people have pointed out Hamas is not located there. Hamas is in Gaza and they're still doing it. I mean, that's the part that I think a lot of people don't realize. These are on opposite sides uh, of Israel, and <laughs> it certainly seems like they are just trying to, for, you know, continue to shrink whatever land Palestinians still have, and I don't want they don't even really have it if it's all occupied, they're where they're living. They're demolishing homes, they're, they're killing people. People have made the argument this is tantamount to ethnic cleansing, that this is genocide, that they are trying to force Palestinians out somewhere else in Gaza, down south. Who knows where for 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 the West Bank? I mean, what do you what do you make of these claims that this is ultimately a genocide and ethnic cleansing? This is definitely an ethnic cleansing. Uh, it, the forcible transfer of hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, Jan Eglund, I, I don't know if you you saw his tweet today. He said, you told 1.1 million Palestinians in Gaza to leave their homes and go to the south as a humanitarian evacuation. Okay, so they uh, hundreds of thousands of people left their homes, got bombed on the roads, go down. There's a complete and total blockade. So there's no water. There's no medicine. There's no humanitarian aid, no fuel to run generators, no electricity, no internet. So people are like, well, we've got nowhere to be. So some of them return back to their homes. 
that is not a humanitarian evacuation. And, you know, we're worried that even in this new Israel supplemental that the administration has requested, um, if you look inside some of the language, there's actually money allocated to set up, uh, you know, uh, infrastructure in the Sinai. So it seems like they're actually thinking like, let's just set up a new refugee camp in Egypt. And, you know, we know, and the Egyptians know that this would be massively destabilizing for Egypt. And it's a war crime. This is just not okay. Um, and, you know, we have to put a stop to it. That's why our activism right now, I, you know, I might be, <laughs> I might be naive here, but I am still holding on to hope that we the American people can can put up enough of uh, a show of force in the streets, uh, you know, and, and show the our members that we're not going to sit here and watch an ethnic cleansing of, of millions of Palestinians happen. And they're not going to hear about it from us. You know, so I would urge people keep the pressure on double down, get your friends and neighbors going. And we're winning the debate. We have a majority of Americans that oppose uh, what Israel is doing right now. We have a majority of Americans that want to see humanitarian aid to Palestinians in Gaza. And I think the administration and members of Congress just need to listen. Get to a couple more points on the uh, ethnic cleansing, genocide, and, and war crimes part in a second. But I want to f- follow this point that you're talking about. The pressure we're putting on people in Congress and the electoral consequences, you know, sometimes people will say in response to Arab American voters, uh, Palestinians, Muslim voters saying, well, we're not going to vote for Biden. We're just after this, I'm sitting out in the election. And the response, especially from white liberals is, well, enjoy Trump. You think Trump's going to support you? You think Trump's going to stand with Palestinians? No, he's not. And that's not what they're saying. They're, they're saying they want political leaders and they want people who represent them to actually represent them. And it's not just them. It's even just represent the will of voters. Like you've said, polling shows a majority, a strong majority of Democrats want a ceasefire. And very few Democrats are actually calling for one. So could you talk about the consequences and this line of the political consequences and this this line that you hear often? Well, uh, well, it's just you're going to get Trump and it's going to be, it's going to be much worse. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't seem like that responsibility should fall on the voters. The problem is Democrats are playing a risky game here. Uh, And, you know, and I I don't think it needs to be all or nothing Um, that they can respect international law, listen to the polling, listen to their constituents. You know, I heard from a staffer that some of these folks are getting a hundred emails a day calling for a ceasefire. There's overwhelming uh, you know, constituent response on this, and it's shaking things things up. So I, I heard it from one office. I'm not going to name names right now, uh, but um, they are generally a, like a pretty you know conservative district. Uh, they have a lot of like you know uh, you, you know APAC you know pressure in their district, and so typically they they tend to you know back off of this issue and just sort of like you know what you know, they support human rights in other areas of the world. They kind of back off this issue. But I'm hearing from these staffers that like, hey, things are actually moving right now. Like we are getting so much pushback inside our office, you know, from these constituents that 
you know, help us get to, you know, a yes, help us, you know, frame this in a way that we can satisfy some of this constituent pressure and outreach. So I'm saying that, you know, th these are, uh, you know, members that haven't really taken a stand on this issue that are feeling like they need to say something and do something uh, because all the work that, uh, you know, we the people are doing. So, so I would just say that don't give up hope and let's keep pressing because there is space and it's growing by the day, especially when you're, you're seeing, you know, the bodies pile up and, you know, Gaza, you know, is turning into a, a, a graveyard for children. I mean, that, that's what we're talking about right now. And, you, you know, and despite the media, uh, you know, not doing the best job of really telling the full story, people, especially people under the age of 30, aren't getting their, their information from the mainstream media. They're actually going on Twitter or, uh, you know, or X or whatever you call it these days, or Instagram or TikTok, or just reaching out to friends or, you know, people contacting them on WhatsApp. And it is, uh, you know, just a new moment where it's going to be really hard for, you know, uh, this to continue without serious repercussions. And it's not, you know, we sometimes say, well, you know, you're, if you vote against a Democrat, you're going to be voting for a Republican. But, uh, you know, if I was a Democratic strategist uh, for the Democratic Party right now, that's not good enough. You have to look at how you're going to actually win election. And you're not going to have a very good, uh, uh, you know, I don't think they're going to have a ton of success unless they capture the Arab American vote, especially in these swing states. So that's a problem for them to deal with. And I would highly recommend that they try to ratchet down this conflict, solve the humanitarian crisis, and uh, you know call for a ceasefire before more uh, more bodies uh, you know end up you know just bombed out. And it's just yeah, we we have to we have to do better as. Uh, as a country, our leaders have to do better. And, you know, and I, I think the only thing that's really going to save us right now are, you know, constituents, you know, saying enough is enough. We need to end this. Absolutely. I mean, and one of these problems that is not really being addressed by Democrats, but certainly Republicans as well, is what now today the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights is starting to call within Gaza, war crimes, suggesting that, okay, what's happening now could constitute war crimes. I think the attack on Jabalia two days in a row would definitely fall into that category. We have confirmed now use of, of white phosphorus. What do you make of what we have, you know, we, we see from the UN, we've, we've seen from UNICEF and other organizations talking about there are rules to war and Israel just ignoring them. I mean, we've, we've talked on this program before about any sort of measure to hold Israel accountable, especially in the UN, is typically met with a veto by the US because on the Security Council, they have veto power. And if one member of the, of the UN Security Council vetoes it, it's just done. Do you think there will be any accountability for Israel, despite what many, many organizations at the international level are now referencing and calling and describing as war crimes? I certainly hope so. <laughs> That's what we're going to be pushing for. 
The politics aren't looking too good right now, but there's more than one way to hold people accountable. Um, you know, one thing that we did just, you know, you know, I, I've worked a lot on the Saudi led war in Yemen. And while we didn't hold Mohammed bin Salman accountable or any Saudi officials, what we did is held them accountable in the court of public opinion through consistently voting and passing resolutions to, you know, limit security assistance, block weapon sales, uh, do like really, uh, you know, you know, intense reporting requirements to make sure that everybody could see the violations that they were committing in Yemen. And it did have a difference on the ground. Uh, we have, you know, Saudi Arabia, that was a horrific, you know, speaking of humanitarian crises, uh, Saudi Arabia has perpetuated one of the world's worst humanitarian crises through their war and blockade on Yemen that's lasted nine years. And, you know, after the passage of the War Powers Act, you know, a couple times actually, um, and through the House, through the Senate, and then through the House and Senate, and you know, Trump vetoed it in 2018 and 2019. Um, you know, and then Biden coming in, we we've seen that Saudi has actually stopped bombing the country, and we made it so difficult <laughs> as activists and members of Congress so difficult that they had to kind of give in and and re you know recalculate, and and so that's the place we need to get to where members actually start holding votes to stop security assistance, to uh, put strings on anything that we are giving and restricting the way U.S. weapons are being used. I've seen it work. We have the tools. We have the tool book. We have the, the, the playbook, I should say. Um, we just need to now build up the political will and really our backs against a wall uh, uh, right now. And we have no other choice but to move forward and build, build the largest mass movement we've seen possibly in our generation. Um, and that, that's exactly what I'm going to be focused on. And I know more and more organizations, you know, every time I look, there's another change.org petition. There's like 100,000 new signers every single day. And, you know, I believe that, that together we can actually really do something here. You mentioned it earlier, and I think this is different for this conflict, and that is people more and more are not getting their news from mainstream and legacy sources. I'm just some sicko who always watches cable news more because I'm curious what the narrative they're trying to generate is. Me too. <laughs> we we got to get our brains checked, man. <laughs> but, <laughs> so I watch it like I kind of hate watch it, but I know I'm I'm in the ever dwindling uh, minority of people who get their news that way. And what we're seeing is especially young people are way more read in on this conflict and the realities of this conflict, the historical context, and especially the day-to-day -day events. And then certainly I wasn't their age, but many people, even just in the past 10 years, who would just turn to uh, a CNN or a Washington Post or the New York Times to inform them. And I'm, I'm curious if you think that and the pushback that especially these outlets have gotten in the first couple weeks of this event has led to moments like Wolf Blitzer actually asking IDF spokespeople, multiple people through multiple segments yesterday on the Jabalia camp, the attack on the, on the Jabalia camp to justify why they did that, knowing there were so many innocent women and children and men who were there present. It's definitely having an impact. Uh, you know, I've been following this for a long time, you know, working on the Hill. Uh, I've been here for, 
no, I think I started in like 2017 doing this kind of hill hill based advocacy, and I saw something really shift in 2021 during the the Israel Gaza war. Uh, you know, after you know Sheikh Jarrah happened, and you know saw all these Israeli airstrikes, and that happened right kind of after the the George Floyd uh, spark that you know the Black Lives Matter movement really took off and. I think it opened up so many people's eyes to systemic racism and the way, you know, black people were being treated unfairly and have been treated, you know, inhumanely in this country for generations and saying enough is enough. We can't allow this to continue and we need to actually transform our society. And then in 2021 and in May, when these Israeli airstrikes were raining down on Gaza for that 11 day, uh, you know, escalation, I think people started, their, the light bulb started to go off and say, wow, you know, this systemic oppression is familiar to us and we can't stand by and allow it to happen, uh, you know, here in the U.S. and say nothing when it's happening across, uh, you know, across the Atlantic Ocean and, uh, you know, to Palestinians in Gaza or the West Bank. And I think there was just so much, uh, you know, that people recognized in the, in the suffering. And, you know, it's just grown since then. And the genie is out of the bottle. I don't think I don't think this younger generation is ever going to tolerate, uh, you, you know, this this these kind of war crimes and atrocities going forward. And, and inshallah, uh, I hope this new generation uh, assumes, you know, more congressional seats and and really, you know, works on building electoral power and, and help help us transform the country because they're more aware, they're more awake, they're more read in, they understand the history and the historical context. And they are seeing with their own eyes what I'm seeing with my own eyes. And if I, if I may, I actually, so FCNL, we have a relationship uh, with the Ramallah Friends School. So I, I went there in 2022. I brought my guitar, by the way, I'm a, I'm, I was a full-time musician before this, this whole, uh, you know, wearing a suit and tie and going on Capitol Hill, trying to convince people to care about human rights. Um, but the headmaster sent me a few prayers from the students that I would love to read if you, if you don't mind, Jordan, because Absolutely. this is, this is how we're getting our news these days directly from people. So this is from a second grader. I wish I could share my flashlight with the people in Gaza so they can see when their power goes out. I wish everybody, I wish I could give everyone in Gaza a mattress to sleep on. I wish I could give everyone in Gaza water that is clean for drinking and enough food for everyone to eat. I pray kids will be safe in Gaza. And from a fifth grader, our weapon is education and the secret to ending violence is nonviolence. My prayer is that the war ends by nonviolence and everyone lives in peace and no one is under occupation anymore. And so I can't say it better than that. Yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot of wisdom in their innocence. And I, you know, it's, I don't know. I don't know. I, yeah, I, I'm with you. Let's just, let's leave it there because if that's what our foreign policy looked like, it would be a much better place. If right. we had a diplomacy first caring about everyone mentality. And that was reflected throughout, not just our government, but all world power governments. I mean, we would be much better off. Everyone would be, would be much better off. And mm -hmm. there is just evil that creeps in once people get into power and once influence and money 
creeps into the system that leads to people doing you know, logical backflips to justify what we're seeing or to insist that this is somehow Israel defending itself. I, I love the purity and innocence in those poems and just the selflessness, the care for strangers. I, I, I really love that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, thank you. I was happy to. And I'll just say that, you know, after chatting with, with them um, and some of these students, you know, they, they don't want to go to school right now. They're, you know, they're, they're worried about the children in Gaza and they, they, you know, they're not wanting to go to school because they feel bad that they can go and that other kids can't. And it's, it's just really kind of heartbreaking to, to hear about that. Um, yeah. And, you know, I just feel accountable having gone and spent some time with them. And, you know, I, you know, during my trip, I, I basically went, you know, to class after class, you know, opening up and just kind of facilitating a discussion with them. I said, hey, I, I live in Washington, D.C. I talked to, to policymakers. Like, what do they what do you want them to know? I'll, I'll be your voice on the Hill. Like, let me know. And they just opened up. They, they told me about, you know, checkpoints. Uh, they told me about their friends in Gaza they couldn't see. And we just had all these, you know, it, and, you know, busted out the guitar. We did some jams. We, we rewrote a uh, Bill Withers song, <laughs> you know, so we had fun too. And, you know, it's just, I just hope that they're safe and protected. Cause you know, if, if you saw these kids, you, you wouldn't be saying that, that they're terrorists or that they're not innocent or that they're guilty for Hamas or something ridiculous. Um, it, it's absurd. It's it's absolutely absurd and shameful what I'm hearing from Capitol Hill right now and hearing from the administration and they should be ashamed of themselves. I mean, it's absolutely horrific. Brian Mast, and this is somebody who volunteered for the IDF. He wasn't born there. He didn't live there. He just went and volunteered for the IDF said, I think today on the house floor, uh, a few different really bigoted, just genocidal things, but equated all Palestinians to Nazis as a whole. I would encourage the other side to not so lightly throw around the idea of innocent Palestinian civilians, as is frequently said. Uh, I don't think we would so lightly throw around the term innocent Nazi civilians during World War II. And in an attempt to justify innocent civilian deaths, just reduced everybody to uh, this this categorization of Nazis. Could you talk about the dangerous effects that type of language that we're seeing more and more of here, but especially uh, in the Israeli government? Just it seems like every day there's some new psychotic comment from uh, a, a member of, of of that government. Could you talk about the this, the really dangerous effects of that rhetoric? You know, we saw it right from the start when people were referring to others as human animals. Um, you know, and that has got to put up red, serious red flags in our antennas for serious atrocities. I mean, if you, you just look at what was happening on the radio in Rwanda before the genocide there, and, you know, we have to be on red alert uh, about what what is about to unfold and what is unfolding right now. So, yeah, it's uncalled for. It's unconscionable. Uh, you know, they members should censure uh people that are saying this kind of, you know, dehumanizing rhetoric. And we should be working to, you know, make sure that U.S. weapons aren't going to contribute to any sorts of atrocities like this. I think tomorrow uh, we're going to see the vote on the Israel supplemental. 
I, I don't think it's, I think it's, for the first time in, in my uh, time on the Hill, I think this is going to get, you know, not that far. The administration issued a veto threat on it because of some of the policy riders in there related to the IRS and other things. Um, so I think actually getting this, this funding package to Israel is going to be harder than, than it normally is. Uh, but, you know, we have to just do more to make sure that this never happens and that, that U.S. support is never used to violate human rights. There's a couple good things in there. I saw that AOC just uh, issued an amendment uh, doing some end-use restrictions on white phosphorus and making sure that it can never be used in populated areas like Gaza. So, you know, there are people pushing back. And, and I think it's time that, you know, on top of just pushing our members, we got to make sure we're thanking and protecting the members that are calling for ceasefire. Uh, folks like AOC, Tlaib, Bowman, Bush, McGovern, you know, Jayapal, I, I could go on and on there. But uh, Rep Castro as well. I mean, there are, and, you know, I would just say one, one thing. It's great if people sign the ceasefire resolution by Tlaib and Bush, but right now I'll take any public comments. So if, even if your member is not on the resolution, still ask that they make their own public comment. I mean, I think all of that, we're keeping track of all these statements and they all build up and, you know, help us make a stronger case uh, to the administration. We see this dehumanizing effect that we talked about in a few different ways. And one of the one of the ways that I really want to get your thoughts on was the Biden administration downplaying the civilian death toll, denying the accuracy of the reports because it came from the, the you know the Gaza uh, Health Authority or the Health Ministry basically saying like, well, what they're claiming, the numbers that they're claiming are not accurate. Could you talk about like the, the underlying effects of downplaying the number of civilian casualties, what that ultimately amounts to? It's just another, uh, you know, way to kind of obfuscate and try to avoid dealing with the reality of what's happening in Gaza right now. Uh, you know, we have data from the health ministry. Uh, we have data from the UN and let's listen to what these humanitarian aid or agencies are saying, like NRC, Oxfam, Mercy Corps, Doctors Without Borders. They're they're warning of you know a mass humanitarian crisis that's unfolding right now. And let's get serious and listen to the people on the ground that are delivering the humanitarian assistance who want to see an end to the airstrikes and the ground invasion, so that they can actually go help people. Uh, and, and make sure that they have the care that they need. And getting into this semantics of like, oh, we're not sure about how many people are, you know, have died. I mean, it's absolutely cynical. Uh, you know, when when we have to like have real leadership right now, and and where are our leaders? We need actual leadership right now to to make sure that the U.S. doesn't like, you know, uh, sleepwalk into World War Three. And that a massive humanitarian crisis that forever destabilizes Israel doesn't unfold on under our watch. You know, I mean, it, it's just that clear, like Bibi Netanyahu does not have Israel's best interests in mind and his political fortunes are, you know, on the decline. I don't know if folks have been seeing, you know, this guy is doing whatever he can to cling on to power in this desperate, cynical attempt. And, you know, the Biden administration is just following, uh, you know, following him down, you know, 
uh, the pit of despair, I guess. I guess my final question is, you know, all of this has been wrapped up in an argument for a ceasefire, the consequences, how we do it. They're the number one pushback that I've seen from people who apparently don't have a problem with what's happening is that a ceasefire will help Hamas. And this is a tough, you know, it, it's a tough thing to think through. But I'm, I'm curious what you make of that argument and why, despite those claims, we should all continue fighting for a ceasefire. Well, this is an important question, right? Um, so Israel is empowering extremists through its actions and empowering a really... A really powerful narrative that, see, you know, you have to come, you know, support, uh, you know, these more extremist ideologies because Israel is treating us so bad. What other choice do we have? And I'll just point to the fact that, you know, there's uh, lots of reporting. Haaretz did an article on this in, you know, what Bibi Netanyahu and others in the Israeli government have done to actually, through Qatar, you know, channel money and funds and support to Hamas, uh, you know, in an attempt to actually undermine the pro-diplomacy voices, the people that wanted a two-state solution, uh, people that supported Israel's right to exist, and they actually saw uh, a benefit to the hardline ideologies that they that they hold by, you know, not allowing for, you know, a quote-unquote partner to, to actually have diplomacy with, and they supported that and then they they took out Fatah. I mean, I know that's kind of ancient history at this point, but I think people should know the history and know that we are here because of conscious choices people made in the Israeli government to undermine the people that supported diplomacy and to empower the hardline extremists. And they're doing that again. They continue to empower and embolden people with hardline ideologies and if you actually want to protect Israeli national security, which a lot of people do, and get back the hostages, this is just not the way. You know, um, why cut off all the food, water, and the medicine for people? Like, if you're going after Hamas, why cut off food and humanitarian aid? Doesn't make sense. Why continue to engage in collective punishment? You know, uh, you know, they're, if they were going after Hamas, that'd be one thing, but they're they're murdering civilians, you know, and, and and it's just baffling. So don't fall for it. Don't fall for these weird narratives. Um, we can use diplomacy to get the hostages back. Uh, we can do diplomacy, uh, you know, to to kind of ratchet down the situation and what the humanitarians are. Let's let's follow their lead on this one. They're calling for a humanitarian pause. Uh, and, and a humanitarian, not sorry, not a humanitarian ceasefire, I should say, um, to allow aid in, to stop the bombings, to be, uh, you know, to be able to address the people that urgently need care. I was talking to a humanitarian uh, just the other day, and he he said, you know, what we do is we actually work with disabled people in Gaza, and a lot of these people, you know, people in wheelchairs, people that can't escape and, and flee the the south, you know. Uh, are unable to leave, they're stuck, and they're at risk of getting bombed just for being there. You know, this is absolutely horrific. So yes, you know, I, and I, you know, I totally empathize. I want to just be clear that I fully condemn the attacks 
that Hamas did on October 7th. You know, I fully condemn the violence against Palestinian civilians, and I fully condemn the systemic oppression that brought us to this moment. You cannot treat people like this. You just can't do it. Stop killing civilians. Full stop. Everybody, stop killing civilians. Stop harming innocent life. I'm here. I'm a U.S. citizen. That's why I'm focused on U.S. policymakers. And, you know, and through that, our aid to Israel. And, and that's where I feel accountable. But we need to ratchet it down so, uh, you know, all these hostages get back home with their families, that we don't have a massive humanitarian crisis unfolding in Gaza, and that we actually address the root causes of this problem, which are stemming from the endless occupation uh, and the blockade and the lack of opportunities for millions of Palestinians in Gaza who actually want hope. They want to have a better future. And if we don't give them hope or any opportunities, you know, we're just going to continue to see cycles of violence play out. Son, I really want to thank you for your time uh, and for, for your work and for uh, FCNL's work. Where can people sign up, learn more, uh, and get involved? Yeah, thank you so much. This was great. I just so appreciate and admire your work. Uh, you know, check us out at fcnl.org. Uh, you know, we got plenty of resources on there. The first thing you'll see is the act now button to uh, call for a ceasefire. And uh, yeah, we just look forward to continuing to work with as many people across this country uh, to, to get this done. Thank you so much for joining me.